I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. As always, today on the podcast, we'll touch on matters of awe and wonder that often give rise to hope, humility, gratitude. Those feelings associated with awe are easy to experience in the life story of a world-class musician who probably should never have gotten as far as he has. The truth is, he's lucky even to be alive, let alone a productive, thriving, compassionate artist. Richard Antoine White and I do not exactly belong to an exclusive club, a fraternity of tuba players. And frankly, as a has-been, I'm not going to toot my own horn about having played the tuba formerly, way back in my high school days. But given my experience with this brass instrument, it was a quick bridge from my life experience to his, the obvious place to start a conversation with him. Any fellow veteran of the high school band room is going to appreciate my first pitch to Richard just to see how he would swing at things. Would you have ever taken up the tuba had you first smelled what the musty, brassy interior of an old junior high school sousaphone could smell like? (laughs) Probably not. I think... uh... Sometimes the universe throws you clues or throws you situation that guide you in the right direction. I wanted to be a football player for the viewers that can't see me. I'm 6'5", 340 pounds. I think I would have made a great linebacker or something. But I broke my hip, and the tuba was what was there, and the rest is kind of history. But if I had smelled brass and all the things you just mentioned, it wouldn't have been on my to-do list at all. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the reason I ask is because I was in junior high, and they said, we don't have a sousaphone player, and they they took me right on over and sat me down in front of the the chair that held it up over my shoulders because I was too small to lift it, and boy, did that thing stink. Oh, we have a lot in common. I remember that Frankenstein chair. I actually started on trumpet because they told my best friend when the person came to school displaying all the instruments, said, hey, man, we should pick trumpet. It's got to be easy. It only got three valves. Boy, was I wrong. The trumpet is hard. So by the time we got to middle school, I was number 18 out of 32 trumpets. I said, this isn't working. I looked up, saw the sousaphone, and said, I want to play that. And much like you, I was too small to hold it, so I call it the Frankenstein chair. I would climb up and get this. I learned to play tuba on a cassette tape. The tape would say, boop, this is B-flat. Practice B-flat. Pause the tape. When you have mastered B-flat, continue. Boop, boop, this is B-flat C. So that's why I really couldn't read music. Later on, I learned to read orally from a cassette tape. I hope all the viewers know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) Little old technology (laughs) there, yeah. Today, Richard White no longer in need of a Frankenstein chair to hold up his heavy instrument, is principal tubist of the Santa Fe Symphony and the New Mexico Philharmonic. He's also professor of tuba and euphonium in the music department at the University of New Mexico. Do you remember what it felt like to first put your mouth on that mouthpiece? I mean, that big chunk of metal. Back then, we rented instruments, so... It wasn't a very good instrument, but my very first buzz was on a Bundy trumpet or a Bundy mouthpiece, whatever came with the Bundy brand. And I thought it was the hardest thing ever. So it was like, it was like kind of silly. You know, at that age, if you make a spit sound, like, 
you're like, oh, you start laughing, right? Because it's hilarious. And I was like, how is that music? So for about two weeks, I walked around just spinning and giggling. Every time I would get the buzz, I would laugh because it's like, ha, 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 you know, that sort of thing. And uh, when I first buzzed and it turned into an actual amplification on the trumpet, man, it was no turning back. I wanted to get better. And then my imagination kicked in. Once I started listening to other trumpet players or other musical brass players, I was like, I want to sound like that. And so that that created, I think, the the start of my work ethic, wanting to achieve that excellence that I heard. It, it was unknowing at the time, but I could translate that sound into my imagination to go, that makes me feel some kind of way. Richard's story actually does not begin in a school band room. It's actually much, much darker than any of that. We need to talk about some of his earliest memories. The improbable thing, the striking thing about Richard is that he should ever have survived infancy in a rough neighborhood of Baltimore called Sandtown. Long before he ever walked into that school band room and found an instrument to play, buckle up, this story is going to get really nuts. Richard Antoine White is author of I'm Possible, A Story of Survival, A Tuba, and the Small Miracle of a Big Dream. He's also the subject of a 2019 documentary called R.A.W. Tuba, from Sandtown to Symphony, that's R-A-W as in Richard Antoine White. I want to go to your earliest memories of place. Describe it for me. The first place you can remember. Man, I guess because of the movie and the book, when we were filming and we hit these the water fountain, when we hit the place where I was found frozen one night, uh, it's unbelievably intense. I have yet to seek out professional guidance, but I'm going to have to talk to someone about it because I think I really suppress those moments in order to move forward. Even now, as you ask me the question, I'm feeling a sense of, whoa, that is some deep roots. I think a lot of times in life, we don't want to go to the basement because that's where the boogeyman lives, right? Or something you don't want to see. But through this journey of mine, I realized I really do have to dig up some roots and get to the source of who I am. A lot of who I am is extremely positive, but a lot of who I am definitely has residue of pain or things that were unfortunate. But I think I'm going to have to revisit that basement of, hey, this is where you were found. This is where your life could have ended if it wasn't for the kindness of strangers. So paint for me a scene And this place may or may not be the place that you first said, oh, this is where I am. It's my home. I don't mean home in terms of like the warm, welcoming place. I just mean a a place that was the place you knew, maybe the only place you knew. Is it a room? Is it an apartment building? Is it a street corner? Is it under a window somewhere outside in the cold? Where's the place where you first were aware wow, I'm in a place. And not everybody can do this, but give it a shot. That's an interesting question. I've never been asked that, but as you asked it, I'm just going to straight forward. The first thing that comes to my mind is an abandoned building, burnt abandoned building, where I was found uh, being nibbled on by rats because I was left there. My mom had a place, a temporary shelter, and as as I was too small to remember you know, but my uncle paints the picture of a burnt shell of a building and me being eaten by rats. Uh, that memory just came to my head as you mentioned that. Outside of that, 
other than outside on a cardboard box or abandoned houses, I have no memory of a home that I would call my own or that even resembles a place where I frequent more than a week at a time. I think if I was honest, I probably slept under a tree or on a cardboard box more than I slept in a shelter. And I'm actually okay with that. That doesn't, uh, that doesn't frighten me or have the same kind of depth as the burnt building image. You know, the, the cardboard box under the tree was my safe place. It was where I allowed my imagination to imagine a full tummy, to imagine a warm blanket. And so that gave me a comfort shield, so to speak. Even when I talk about it now, that's, that was normal for me. I'm not sure I knew any better. Richard McLean Jr., uh, he was the one who told you what happened on that day you were discovered and the rat eating at you. Just a moment ago, you referred to him when you said, my uncle, and we're going to have to explain that, and, and we're going to want to hear what he told you. I guess we really ought to explain that Ricky Jr. was the son of Richard McLean Sr. and his wife, Vivian, and he ends up being kind of your uncle and your brother all at the same time. Oh, that's a complicated story. I think he and I would sit in my grandpa. I, I know people haven't read the book, but Grandpa Archie was my adopted parents, Vivian's dad, and I loved him. So I, would, I inherited his room when he passed away. So Richard McLean Jr. and I would sit in his room and talk. I think one day I just asked him, I said, man, do you know how I got this scar on my side? And he said, oh, yeah, absolutely, man. He said, it scared the heck out of me. He said, I came, the neighbors were calling, saying they had a baby. I came downtown and uh, was looking for you, heard you crying, came in, saw the rats around you. And he said, Ricky, I panicked, I panicked. I just pulled out my twenty-two and I shot the, the rats. And he was like, and I thought uh, you were going to be deaf as a result of it, that I had damaged your hearing. Luckily, I didn't. And we just start talking about that moment. He said, yeah, man, done with some hard times. And then he revealed some, some uh, hardness that he and my mom had to face. He told me, you know, back then in the 70s, everybody was dealing with something, man, whether it be alcohol or some kind of drugs. He was like, all of us had our demons, which opened up my eyes and turned my direction of thought into him because he was very vulnerable in that moment. Although we were talking about me and I asked questions, he opened up and said, we were all fighting something, man. You know, but he said, yeah, you got that from rats. They were eating on your side. So the reason he even showed up in the first place was because there was a report that had come back to what? His parents, uh, Richard and Vivian McLean, that there was a, a, a baby screaming somewhere. Yeah, and so on the investigation or homework, I don't know if you call it homework, investigation, of telling my story, I was able to tell it so vividly. And if people are wondering, well, if he was three and four, how do he remember? Everyone's still alive, well, was still alive at the time of the book. So I could ask a lot of questions. And, uh, you know, when I asked uh, these people, well, how could you not help? Like, if you, if you knew this was a kid being eaten by rats, not eating every day, how did you let this go? And they told me something remarkable. They said, well, you were your mom's son. And I says, of course, what do you mean by that? And they said, she wasn't letting anyone take you. And so if we tried to intervene, she was like, this is my bleep bleep son. You get away. I'm taking care of my son. So there was a serious sense of pride that prevented intervention from people. And then that turned to guilt from the people wanting to help that they didn't want to report because they didn't want the authorities to take me from my mom because they saw how much pride she had in claiming me as her son. 
I appreciate where they were coming from, but ultimately later in my life now, I appreciate the transformation that happened within my mom more so that if she had that kind of pride and then later on came to the realization that I have to let him go in order for him to have a better life. She went from being an unbelievably prideful person to being my hero because she did one of the hardest things there is to do, which is to give up a kid so that I could have a better life. So yeah, at first that pride went to, Oh man, nonsense. How could she do that? And now it's turned into, wow, what a hero. We've now heard several names, and if you want to map out all the family ties in this story, well, things can get a little confusing, so I'm not going to try to unpack it all. Richard's about to clarify things anyway. I'll just explain this much, that Vivian and Richard McLean had been foster parents to our guest Richard's mother. And after the incident with the rats, they became his foster parents too. He also has a foster uncle of sorts, the McLean's biological son known as Ricky Jr., the man with the 22. The story gets crazy. So ultimately, the same people that fostered my mom ended up fostering me once I was frozen. And I think fostering is the, the wrong word. They've got legal guardianship of me. Like if you look up legal documents, it's legal guardianship, not an actual adoption. And within that family... Uh, there were some triumphs because I had to transform Richard and Vivian from grandma and granddad to mom and dad. And that same mom and dad is ultimately the same stepmom and dad that my mom had. And Ricky Jr. is their only natural born son out of probably about eight or seven other kids that they had adopted. That's really the family lineage there. So it seems like the McLeans were kind of straddling this fence where they kind of wanted Cheryl to be able to be your mom and be involved in your life, and yet they knew she didn't have the capacity, but that breaking point came when the reports were coming back about this child in distress. Maybe they didn't know that yet. They had to just redefine things, and did they have to push Cheryl out and say, you're no longer in charge, we are? Didn't happen quite that way. I think the rat was an isolated incident. There were trials and tribulations for everyone in that. And I think they came from a culture where if you were in the African-American community, you just took care of one another. So it was very common for aunts, friends or whatever to bind together and take care of kids. That's what they did. But the breaking point was actually me being found frozen because then it became real that if they don't intervene, I'm going to end up dead. That was the changing point. And I think it was also a changing point on both sides. That was a point where my mom cried and lost her pride and said, she's right, I can't do this. There was no screaming. There was no arguing this morning when I was thawed out and resting. And I think they had a mutual agreement. And just to be fair, I think Richard and Vivian wanted her to be an integrated part of my life. But you can't live on two sides of the street at the same time. I was living in what I call Buckingham Palace, Richard and Vivian's house, and my mom was still living the street life. So half of her world was on the streets, the same life that I was saved from, and the two things just didn't go together. You had a serious street life versus a strong, founded Christian, you know, do no wrong life. I don't know the right terminology to say that, but in, in Vivian and Richard's house, of course, they would never make you go to church on Sundays. But if you didn't go to church, you didn't go anywhere else. Your choice. <laughs> <laughs> we
we have to go back to, uh, you see some potato chips one day. Is this before or after you're with the McLeans? I'm talking about the cut to the foot, the broken window, the potato chips. Oh, wow. Yes, you have really done your homework. That's amazing. Yes. So I'm just walking at night past some row houses and in the basement window with some potato chips. So my brain just decided that, oh, I could kick that window out and help myself to the chips. Not thinking that glass is sharp and it will penetrate my skin. I kicked the window out backwards, actually, not forward. So I turned around with the heel of my foot and kicked in the window. And the window broke, but it also shattered my ankle to where it was dangling. My foot was dangling from my ankle. Needless to say, I did not get the chips. I was on the ground screaming, whatever. And what was remarkable about that situation, it was a serious cut. My mom didn't want to call the ambulance because we couldn't afford it. And I think we had just been to social services trying to work out something that day as well. So this woman carried me all the way to the hospital to get the shots, uh, tetanus shot and stitches for that. I don't know how she did it. But uh, she carried me all the way to the hospital. I got stitches and she said, you got to be careful. That was so stupid with tears in our eyes. But uh, I guess it was like subliminal power. You know, I, I often read that if you love someone and like a car falls, them, you'll get this subliminal power to lift the car. And I want to say it was several miles that she carried me with a dangling ankle to the hospital. Where did your food come from in those days before going to the McLean's? I would often ask people for food and I wouldn't get it. And so I started looking in trash cans. I would find food and I would actually store it under my tongue because I didn't know when I would eat again. It's the same place my clothes came from. I would often find shoes in dumpsters and I would just put newspaper in them so that they would fit. It didn't work, obviously, because if you if you go and experiment and try this, it's just going to fall off. So that's why I always ended barefooted. And then I think ultimately... I got tired of asking people for food. So in my documentary, there's a scene where she said, last time I saw him, he was out there standing in the rain. I asked him if he wanted a sandwich. He said, no, I'm waiting for my mom. It wasn't that I didn't want the sandwich. I was pissed that I was asking people for food and being denied all the time. So I just said, to heck with it. I won't ask anybody for anything. And that's why when she said, do you want a sandwich? I said, no. It was sort of... Uh, unhealthy defiance on my part, but uh, I, I was often told no often than I was told yes. And some of the listeners may be like, well, how is that possible? This is unbelievable. Believe it or not, uh, people that wanted to help didn't have the resources to help because they had their own kids to feed. And you might be thinking, well, you could just give them a little piece of sandwich. That just wasn't the mindset. Like, And oftentimes, the parents were not eating just to feed their own kids. So that, that was a, a really trying time that we were living in. Let's talk about getting used to that Buckingham Palace, as you call it. Uh, that was not an easy transition for you, was it? What did you have to do to, to feel like they were your allies, the McLeans? Oh, what a powerful question. I was blown away. First of all, until you have things, you don't realize what you don't have or what you're missing. So first of all, I was unbelievably angry at them because all I knew is that you took me away from the one person I love more than anything in this world, my mom. 
I don't care about the luxuries, the food or whatever. So first of all, I developed a best friend, which was myself. I talked to myself in the mirror almost every day. And I would say things like, I know you. You're like my friend. We can hang out because I was so angry at the McLeans that I refused to talk to them. So my conversations with myself. And then they had like, I guess I would just call them routines. Like they ate three meals a day. So I was like, what? So during lunch, I would just eat half a sandwich. I was small. And then stick the other half in my pocket because I was like, I'll eat this later. And they're like, if you want another sandwich, just ask for it. And I was like, yeah, right. I'm going to keep this sandwich in my pocket. So that was weird. Uh, Other things like that's normal, taking a bath. I was so used to sleeping on a cardboard box of floors. I would take a bath and they put me in these things called pajamas and then put me in the bed. I would take the pajamas off, put my dirty clothes on and sleep on the floor because that's what I was most comfortable with. And it was hard on both sides. They had to figure out my world just as much as I had to figure out their world. And they were shocked, I'm sure, at the levels of unfamiliarity. Richard, as you grew, after you had adjusted to new life in the McLean home, without all that extreme hardship of the early years, basically you enter a new existence with a, with everything, with a, with enough food and, and with baths and pajamas, a, a, a regulated life. Maybe we could just call it normal life with family meals together and shoes that fit, better socialization, life at school. Well, I'm going to jump ahead now several years to the years of the band room and the Frankenstein chair. Mr. Burns is who I want to talk about now. Mr. Burns was one of your music teachers, and I understand he would actually give you rides home from school. Somebody needed to do that. It wasn't there for you, and he'd pick you up, maybe take you places you needed to go. Well, I'm happy to talk about Mr. Burns. Uh, There's another book coming out eventually I'm working on now. It's called The Five Educative Languages of Teaching. And Mr. Burns is in my book, and in my book, he is called The Storyteller. And The Storyteller believes in telling stories as a form of relatability. So Mr. Burns would tell me about the Canadian brass, tell me how you can play tuba in orchestra, and tell me how I could go listen to the Baltimore Symphony. And he was just a dedicated teacher, uh, so much so that he developed systems to encourage kids. So here I am. First of all, I started on trumpet. Then went to baritone, then went to tuba, which is a pretty common progression. Mr. Richard Burns had something called a star chart. You learn the piece, you get a star, but he never had a serious tuba player. So there were no stars available for tuba because we play the bass line. Boom, 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 boom. We don't play da da di 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 da da da. I said, I want to play that. I just called. He said, You want to play that on tuba? I said, Yes, sir. He said, we don't have that. I guess I'll go home and transcribe that in bass clef for you. I was like, thank you. So I was the first tuba player to get all the stars. And then he saw how dedicated I was. And I said, well, I don't, I don't have a tuba at home to practice. He said, well, every Friday, I'll take you home. Some old Honda Accord. We would put the sousaphone in there. We figured out how to make it fit in the trunk. But Mr. Burns is the definition of what we call a dedicated teacher. He made me believe that the impossible was possible. I'm going to date myself here, but, you know, he introduced me to things like the encyclopedia. 
And this is going to be a doozy. The Dewey Decimal Card Catalog System, where I looked up all the things in the stories he was telling me. And then ultimately, cassette tapes and these things called LP players, which when I looked them up, this is going to blow people's mind. I found some kind of catalog where I could get records for one cent. For one cent. So I would like scour. I, I mean, some, some listeners may be able to relate to this, but I'm, I'm not making this up. There was this brochure. And I was like, one cent? Oh, my gosh. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get that. And so every time uh, Richard Burns would tell me a story or mention a symphony piece or whatever, I was able to go get it. Because once upon a time on Christmas, I got a little LP record player that was in the shape of a briefcase. And it changed my life. Not only did he change my life, by going the distance for students, he changed my life by showing me what was actually possible. I had listened to hours and hours and hours of classical music years before I ever set foot in a concert hall and heard a live orchestra. Can you relate to that? Amazing. So... Yes, I had these records and I listened. The first time I heard the Baltimore Symphony, I was floored. I was like a moment where you say, I mean, I know you told me it sound good, but you didn't tell me it sound really, really good. I It was like magic. It's like seeing a star for the first time in the sky. Like, how is that possible? And so much so, I was moved by the music that I went and got a job at the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra so that I could hear the orchestra every day. I was an usher there because that's the only way I could afford the tickets. That's how much I wanted to know how this magical sound was produced. Like seeing a star in the sky for the first time. Can you relate to what Richard is saying there? Have you ever been struck like that? Awestruck? Could be music, could be nature. You're feeling, sensing, observing uh, something, anything. And it feels like, or maybe it is, the very first time, and you scarcely even know how to process it. Well, that's exactly what he's talking about. It's an unreal feeling. I think I have a pretty good imagination, but hearing the professional orchestra live for the first time was literally a life-changing experience. I can close my eyes now and hear that first sound. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. You did not have an orthodox audition to get into the Baltimore School of the Arts. So things were very unorthodox in my stay at the Baltimore School of the Arts. I showed up on a Saturday in crutches because I had just broken my hip with football wearing that tuba called the sousaphone. (laughs) So I had half the sousaphone on me, and I was wearing the bell like a hat. So I'm trying to open all the doors. They're not opening. And then randomly, I found one door that was open. So I helped myself. I walked in, and the director was there because he had forgot some manuscript or something. And he said, what are you doing here? And I said, I came to audition. He said, excuse me? Auditions were yesterday. It's uh, Saturday. And I said, well, I'm here now. And he said the audacity of me to say, well, I'm here now, made him believe that he had to hear me. So I auditioned. And uh, the audition was really funny. I played a Mozart piece. And then I guess it's part of their curriculum where you have to sight read something. So he pulls out a piece of paper and he points to the note 
Uh, he said, do you know what this is? And I pushed down my first fingers. I said, yeah, it's this. He said, do you know what it's called? And aggressive, I said, yeah, it's this. And so I mimicked my first vowel fingering again. He said, but can you tell me the name of this note? I said, yeah, man, it's this. He said, let's try this another way. And then he went to the piano and played something. He said, can you play that back? I was like, yeah. And he said, but you can't read that. I was like, no. And so remember, this leads back to how I first started playing music with that old cassette tape. And so he said, hold on. He went and talked to the faculty. He said, you must be the luckiest kid on the planet. We're going to accept you into the Baltimore School for the Arts. And to give the statistic, on any audition season, they will hear 600 kids. Out of that bunch, they will accept 35. You squeaked in. <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> I hit the lottery, really. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I realized something at the Baltimore School for the Arts. Even at my days later in Indiana, I realized that there is always going to be somebody more talented than me or better in some way. But I guess my superpower, one of my superpowers is that I realized no one should ever outwork me. And so I bought into what I was told, that you work hard, work as hard as you can, work even harder, and things will most likely work out for you. Not all the time, but I bought into it. You did not know about this because you tell the story. You tell the story of Dante, and you think you're practicing hard. (laughs) Would you tell us how that went down? That's a hilarious story. So we had something called, uh, I think, Brass Ensemble, and you had to take tests. So that means that you have to come in and play your assignment. So you would have to come in and play the B-flat scale And so we would all go down one by one. Dante, your turn. Dante plays B-flat scale. A plus. You know, Alicia, your turn. A plus. Then they get to Richard. Richard, uh, F. And I'm like, okay. And then she says, you think you can fix that? And I say, probably not. (laughs) So then after class, Dante's like, man, you got to practice. You don't practice the scale. I said, what do you mean practice? I looked at it. He said, nah, fool. You actually have to practice it so you can play it right in class. And I went. All y'all, all y'all play these before you get to class every week. He's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, ain't nobody tell me. So I was just coming in. I'll give it a shot. Sure. <laughs> right. And then it's funny because he's like, well, how much did you practice, man? I said, I did good this week, man. I practiced a whole half hour. He said, a half hour, fool. My warm up is a half hour. <laughs> And I was like, oops. So it was funny, but it changed it changed my concept of work and what you're supposed to do. Uh, I think eventually I started practicing them every week and pulled my grade up. Learning to practice well went hand-in-hand hand with learning to listen well, too, and doing as much of both of these as possible. Among the professional music recordings that Richard came to love during this time were recordings by one of the world's premier brass ensembles. It's a group that enjoyed great popularity going back to their founding in the 1970s. I'm talking about Canadian brass. Who was it that first mentioned Canadian brass to you? 
uh, that would have been the storyteller, Richard Burns, which is amazing because later on in life, I got to play with them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he mentioned them to me, and we had something, a uh, public library. It's called the Enoch Pratt Library, and it's multiple floors, so you could go and look in the encyclopedia, see Canadian brass, and then you could go get all the Canadian brass LPs. So I think I it was Canadian brass live, and they had... Uh, a Mozart on there. And I was like, how are they playing this string piece? Uh, floored, blown away. And then many years later, I got to tour with them in Branson, Missouri with a show called Brass Theater. So if Richard uh, Burns had never told me about them and I had, hadn't had the ability to look in encyclopedia, I wouldn't have had this magical world introduced to me and later to be a part of it. Richard, I want to go back to what you left behind in the way of your hopes and dreams when you picked up music as a focus. You told how you were injured, knocked out of contention for a sports career. Can you can we just go back to that and pick up that aspect of your life story? You know, uh, it, it, I hate to say it this way, but your your music career got a boost when your athletic career was snuffed out. Tell us how that all went down. Uh, we were playing what we call street ball on Pimlico Middle School field. Street ball is when you just walk through the neighborhoods and you say, hey, we're going to play football. Everybody come join us. You might start with two people, but by the time you get to the field, you got a whole uh, a whole team on both sides to play football. I was talking a lot of smack. I, I was big, so I was playing running back and I uh, probably shouldn't have been talking so much. And they decided to make an example out of me. Two people picked up my right leg and left leg, ran opposite ways while someone came over the top. In that moment, they broke my hip. But in that moment, I just thought pain. But as I had to deal with this injury, I think I was blessed with being on the street because adaptability is something that I do naturally. I immediately thought, okay, what's next? What's plan B? And plan B was the sousaphone. And now that I'm older, I think that the universe threw me a gift because I actually think had I played football, considering all the injuries I always get when I play sports, I think I would have been one of those examples. I still probably would have been successful, but I would have been paralyzed or something like that. So I consider it a gift. Every, and it seems that way about a lot of things in my life. Everything that I'm mad that I didn't get turns out that it was actually a good thing that I didn't get at. I got what I, exactly what I was supposed to get. It would be wrong to reduce the wonder of Richard White's story to just one of its many facets, just one focus. We've already heard him describe his encounter with live orchestral music as one of those unforgettable moments like seeing a star for the very first time. But frankly, musicians are, are known for their habit of swooning over their favorite moments in music. A musician who can't do that. Well, that's a musician you never want to hear perform uh, because he or she has no real claim to a belief in the transcendence of musical experience. So, I felt like I needed to press Richard on this matter of where wonder is found, not just in music, and he was more than willing to describe it. I just want you to, to hear where he took this. A lot of the people that we feature on our show, they tell a story. Sometimes it's a single event, and it's a moment when they're awestruck, where there's a realization. It's an epiphany of some kind, and the lights go on. Or maybe like the world just stops, and they suddenly feel something they can't quite understand, where you get an awareness of something that's bigger than can be explained. Absolutely. That is me being a child. I 
it's weird because I get to look back on my life and, and see these blessings. I say in my book, I want everyone to read my book and feel like they're a superhero. Why? Because superheroes have some kind of power that makes them invincible. I know what my superhero power is. It's my imagination. So the kind of moment you're talking about is the moment where I had to imagine a full tummy or imagine a blanket. Else I starve to death. Else I freeze to death. My imagination became so vivid and clear that it became my reality. That has been a super defining moment in my life. I also think it's why I have the ability to really give some extraordinary expressions through the vehicle of tuba and music. My superpower is my imagination, and it was given to me on the streets of Baltimore. I found in Richard another sort of superpower. I'm going to tell you what it is so that he doesn't have to toot his own horn. Richard likes to celebrate other people, including family, of course, and no doubt the students he's taught over the years, but really important to him, it seems. He misses no opportunity to talk about the importance of good teachers. He has a profound gratitude for the mentors in his life, and that gratitude kind of gushes whenever he talks about them. Next on this episode of Constant Wonder, we're going to hear Richard Antoine White, or R.A.W., talking up a few of his own teachers. We'll also come full circle back to family with a stunning story nobody could have predicted, not even Richard himself, the surprise appearance of a family member at a movie premiere of the documentary about his life, Raw Tuba. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. We're bringing you a conversation with Richard Antoine White. He's a professional tuba player and music professor, but he wasn't always these things. In early childhood, very early childhood, he was fending for himself on urban streets. His days were marked by cold, hunger, homelessness, deprivation. That childhood bore no hopeful sign of any future life success. The clinical euphemism for his condition back then is failure to thrive. But today he's an artist, a teacher, and I have to say thriving, an optimist, to an almost irrational degree optimistic, if you think about his origins. When he tells his life story, he routinely speaks of impossible things becoming possible. Very consistent with all of that is the title of his memoir, I'm Possible. Now, I need to make clear that Richard's story isn't just about his work as a musician, his development and progress towards that professional career. There is an aspect to his story that involves the notion of first things first. You'll see what I mean in this part of my conversation with him. Richard, there's a story you tell that ties in exactly with this because you just connected will I have food to I'm going to make music, which is really kind of a leap, you know, in a way. But there was a time when you were coaching other teachers on how to be teachers. And in a spur of a moment, you give this piece of advice, and the piece of advice is give that kid food. Do you remember that story? Yeah, well, I was at a conference, actually, and someone says, well, what happens, you know, when you hit a brick wall? You've done everything you can. You know, you actually believe in the kid, but nothing is working, and the kid is not excelling. And in that moment, I hadn't had a premeditated answer. I just looked up and said, feed him. And his jaw dropped. He said, excuse me? And I said, yeah, put some noodles or Chef Boyardee in the closet. I said, I would bet money that this kid is hungry. They can't 
concentrate on the math test. They can't do what they're supposed to do because they're actually coming to school to eat and they don't have the ability to function. And so he called my bluff and actually went and got noodles for students. And then I got a call later. He said, how did you know? The student's performance has skyrocketed. And I said, just had a hunch, man. There's a movement now in schools where they have don't ask, don't tell policies. They keep food and you can just go get it and no one says anything. So it was just instinct that I suggested that. And I think that happens when you come from a place of authenticity. Just like I'm having this interview with you, I I don't practice thoughts. I've just made a decision to be vulnerable. And in that moment, I'm glad I was blessed with the ability to be vulnerable, no matter how odd my answer might seem, to just say, hey, feed the kid. (laughs) You know, Uh, that was my true instinct at that point. I wasn't worried about being seen as being silly or having a just ridiculous answer. It was just the answer that fell upon my heart, and I expressed that. Square one, for some kids, might be get some food in their stomachs. And so I I love that story. I also love the way that that you have learned to teach from other teachers who were your models. And so I I want you to tell me about that legend in the tuba world, one of your teachers, Daniel Perantoni. Yes. Daniel Perantoni is the motivator. You know, oftentimes I would go into lessons. He said, well, how did the audition go? And I was like, I think it went okay. He said, only okay, but you didn't win, son. And I said, no, sir. And then I play. And he go, well, that was pretty good, but you don't own it. And then he had a saying to a very popular quote, amateurs practice until they can get it right. Professionals practice until they can't get it wrong. Experts practice until they own it. I was like, whoa, I never heard that little last part there, own it. And so he elevated me to another level because I was asking myself, do I own this excerpt? Well, I don't think I own any of them. And he's like, that's my point. Don't lower your level of expectations, but raise your level of performance to meet your level of expectations. When you walk into his lessons, you would hear like the Rocky theme playing because you knew it was going to be on. That's how you felt going to your lesson with Mr. P. So he was a true motivator. So in your experience with these kinds of mentors, teachers, uh, did you have to be humbled? I definitely had to be humbled. And the person that humbled me the most and um, had probably had the biggest influence is David Federley, the truth teller. I mean, I cried after every lesson. He was as blunt as it could be. But what I learned from David Federley is that the truth will set you free. But first, it will piss you off but you'll be better for it afterwards. That's how I describe my lessons with David Federley. Because, uh, man, I was in tears. I was angry a lot. And the story I remember most is I said, I'm going to quit my job. I can't do this. I'm just going to get some student loans, and I'm going to quit my job so I can pass and practice. And he looked me straight in the face and said, if you quit your job, I will fail you. This is life. I expect you to work. I expect you to practice. I expect you to get good grades. This is what I require of you. And if you don't do it, you will get an F. I thought he was crazy. I was like, this man is psycho. But he was absolutely right. And he helped define my work ethic. I never quit my job. I continued to work. I got passing grades and I continued to practice because that's what is expected of me. And that's what I'm supposed to do. And I thank him for being honest enough to tell me. 
Richard, I need to interject just very quickly. This was after the Baltimore School for the Arts, and you had gotten into the renowned Peabody Institute, and David Federley, who taught you there, was also principal tubist for the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. And and this teacher, uh, you call him the truth teller, uh, says he'll fail you if you quit your job. But uh, what, what exactly what job were you doing? I did stage crew. So I always worked jobs that were connected to my career. So I figure... <clears throat> If I do stage crew, I could hear all the concerts because I have to be there to do the set changes. So all throughout Peabody, I worked something called stage crew. So I could sign up for as many concerts as I want, and all I had to do is set up the chairs and stands. You're kind of like on your own, paving your way. They launch you out there, and then you're going to all these schools. You have all these professors, and at some point, you are a professional accomplished tuba player with major groups. At some point, family comes back into the picture. Richard and his late wife, Vivian, did they really have insight into who you are as a musician? Was that kind of a life and a direction that they could uh, sympathize with and understand? I don't think they had any clue about my music thing. In fact, by the time we had made the documentary about my life, my parents had never been to a concert. The first concert that my dad been uh, uh, witnessed was me, the premiere of the documentary. Uh, prior to that, he'd never been to a concert. And the way my parents raised me is just to provide. I know there's a book called The Five Love Languages. They are definitely providers, and I'm the same way. We don't say, I love you. Uh, when I'm around families that say it every day, it's awkward to me. All they did was to provide for me and give me the resources to the best of their abilities. I don't think Richard and Vivian had any insight except to be kind and help out where they can. I mean, if you want to talk about just good old American people, blue-collar working, being kind and changing the world as a result of just keeping, as my dad would say, just keep your nose clean and move forward as best you can. They are an exemplary example of that. Richard has a half-brother who is uh, named William and, and quite a bit younger than he. And their relationship was never close, given the age disparity, but also given the chaotic situation of their childhoods. They only met briefly, really, and didn't interact much at all with each other until after their mother died. That's when Richard was 19, William was 8. In recent years, they've bonded over their shared love of music. And Richard has kind of started looking out for his younger brother. We had a rough start because I didn't talk to him. And one day he called me up and just laid into me. How come you don't talk to me? Blah, 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 blah. And I, once again, just vulnerability. I answered very candid and said, I don't talk to you because I don't know you. And it was an aha moment for him. He said, oh my, I never thought about that. We don't know each other. That makes sense. And he said, so can we start talking? And we started talking and realized, oh, okay, this is pretty cool. So now when I'm out on tour or whatever, or the film is showing, he joins me. So I'll talk, the film will play. And then when the film ends, we'll each walk in. He'll walk in from the left side. I'll walk in from the right side. I'm playing hip hop tuba and he's freestyle rapping. You got your brother on the track. I'm going to style out a little bit. I think y'all can hear me. How y'all doing tonight? I'm going to get in a different type of zone right now. You know what I'm saying? All right. Listen. I'm dark skin. I'm cool. 
attitude, I'm right. Me and my brother, we good, we love each other for life. Don't get it confused. If he 3,000 miles away, beef come, I come through, hit you where you stay. Uh, and if I can't make an event and it's suitable for him to attend, he attends. I'm so grateful for William changing his life. He got off the streets, got away from dealing drugs. He works at Walmart full time, drives a truck. He is married in Dallas with two kids now and living a very happy life and doing things the right way. In his mind, we always laugh. He said, man, I love you. And I'm glad you told me to do things the right way, but it sure do take a long time to do things the right way. <laughs> and I said, yeah, but doing things the right way keeps you free. <laughs> so I'm, I'm very proud of him. And I hope that through our, our collaborations and endeavors that someone actually notices his talent. Your biological father. Wow. My biological father, that's a doozy of a story. So I, as far as I can remember him, I've seen him once. And the way this happened is extraordinary. During the premiere of the film Raw Tuba, uh, at the end, when we had questions and answers, keep in mind, let me paint the picture. On stage is me holding a giant movie poster of the film Raw Tuba. To my left is Ed Goldstein and David Federley. To my right is Richard McLean and one of the film directors for the movie. And people are asking questions, and then randomly, uh, some man stood up and pointed to Goldstein. I want to thank you for starting him on the tuba. I want to thank you for being hard on him and giving him a toozy knee, pointing to David Federley. And then he pointed to Richard McLean Sr. and said, I want to thank you for loving him and taking care of you because I couldn't be there. And I want to thank everyone here tonight for supporting him and told everyone that he apologized for not being in my life because he was incarcerated. And in that moment, I realized who this man was. It was my dad, who I had seen for the first time in my life. I put the poster down, ran, and just gave him a hug. It was crazy because I was supposed to go back and play a version of We Are The World with solo tuba and choir. I had to take a couple minutes to get myself together but I was proud of him at being my dad in that moment because he didn't have to stand up and say that. And then the next day, something extraordinary happened. I canceled dinner with Richard McLean Sr., my stepdad, and went out with my real dad to, uh, I think they call them, uh, it's like all-you-can-eat buffets where they cook the food in front of you, like Japanese-style hibachi. I went to all-you-can-eat hibachi, and when I saw him, he gave me a hug and handed me $40. And I had to do everything in my power to hold back the tears because in that moment, he was my dad. And I know that $40 was a sacrifice. I have not spent it. And uh, it was the first time that I felt like I had a dad in terms of it being my natural dad. Uh, extraordinary moment, extraordinary circumstances. And uh yeah, it, it, right now I'm a little bit emotional because it was that intense, but it was that meaningful. We promised to keep in touch afterwards. We try, but we don't really. But in that moment, he's given me a lifetime to hold on to. And I'm grateful for that because if we don't talk again, if we talk every once, five years or whatever, I'm okay with that. And, and no disrespect, I'm also okay with understanding that I do have a biological dad, but I also have a dad that I intend to call dad until I can't anymore. And that's Richard McLean Sr. So the two can exist. And I, I think that moment gave me a way to put Raymond Toller, my biological dad, 
in a place that exists without resentment. People make claims about the power of music, and sometimes it just sounds so trite. Is it futile to try to explain the wonder of music? No. Uh, And I'm often asked awkward questions. Sometimes I'm asked, does it feel weird to be the only black person on stage uh, when you're about to play uh, with the orchestra? And I go, I can assure you that I've never sat down to play a Mahler symphony. I went, wow, I'm the only black person on stage. I've got a million other things that I'm concerned about before that downbeat happens. And the pigmentation of my skin is not one of them, I promise you. Never has that happened. And then when people talk about, well, how can you relate to classical music? How can you relate to jazz, a country, a rap, or whatever? I answer it in this way. Whether you're Beethoven, whether you're Bach, Mozart, Whether you're playing rap, classical, or country, we all choose from the same set of notes. Look what happens when we come together and make music. I don't know you. You don't know me. We can speak different languages, sit down in front of music, and make music together, regardless of our differences. You mean to tell me that I'm choosing from the exact same notes that Bach and Beethoven chose from? I'm telling you exactly that. (laughs) And I'm telling you whether... Whether a brother played it or a Caucasian played it, it's still the same 12 notes today, (laughs) right? But what we have to do is just let it live and make sure we don't run interference. Let it exist. It has defined itself for centuries. Why would we tamper with it? I think we're making it complicated by trying to explain it. What we should try to do is express the things that exist within music, like tell a person, you know, You're dancing, you're moving, that's called motion, you know? You're crying, you feel some kind of way, that's emotion. So music has emotion, music has motion. We can hear all of that. Let's focus on what exists in the music and let the defining moments and the power of music do what it do. And what I mean when I say do what it do, let the magic happen. On Constant Wonder today, we've had a chance to get to know Richard Antoine White and some of the remarkable story of his resilience, his persistence. We've heard his joie de vivre. (laughs) Quite improbable that he ever acquired that, given his background. Richard Antoine White, or R.A.W., is the subject of a short arts documentary. It's titled Raw Tuba, From Sandtown to Symphony. He's author of I'm Possible, a story of survival, a tuba, and the small miracle of a big dream. White is principal tubist of the Santa Fe Symphony and the New Mexico Philharmonic, also a professor of tuba and euphonium in the music department at the University of New Mexico. This episode was produced by Eric Schultzka, Paige Crumperman Darrington, and Lily Jensen, with help from the BYU sound design team, including Addie Mangum and Josh Cloward. I'm Marcus Smith. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.